Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner-Khan. When you have an abundance mentality and you think something's possible, what happens is it opens up your eyes to opportunities. Today on episode 481 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with strategist, negotiator, and dealmaker, Corey Kupfer. I'm going to ask Corey how to create deals where the resulting whole is much greater than the sum of the individual parts and much more. Find out more about Corey along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Corey Kupfer. Corey is an expert strategist, negotiator, and dealmaker with more than 30 years of professional dealmaking and negotiating experience as a successful entrepreneur, attorney, consultant, author, and professional speaker. He is the founder and principal of Kupfer & Associates, PLLC, a leading corporate and deal law firm, the founder and CEO of Authentic Enterprises, LLC, a speaking training and consulting company committed to inspiring authenticity in business, the author of Authentic Negotiating Clarity, Detachment, and Equilibrium, The Three Keys to True Negotiating Success and How to Achieve Them. Corey is also the creator and host of the Fueling Deals podcast, which launched in February 2019. Corey, welcome to the show. It's so great to be with you. Corey, you have a a wealth of experience in um, a variety of areas. What is a deal? How do you define a deal? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because people have a misperception that when they hear deal, they automatically think of merger or acquisition and they think of big companies, which is definitely one type of deal. But, uh, you know, companies of all sizes can do deals from solopreneurs to big companies, and they range from those kind of big M&A deals to licensing deals, joint marketing deals, strategic alliances of various types, um, joint ventures. Uh, you know, even, you know, deals to hire key employees and incentivize them. So my definition of deal is pretty broad. And the main thing that I talk about is, hey, every business tries to go to grow organically, meaning through sales and marketing and providing great products and services. But there are also all of these kinds of opportunities to grow inorganically through some sort of deal. And whether you're big, small, have big, have a lot of capital or not, there are ways to do it. Right. So essentially, it sounds like a deal is creating something that when two or more parts are combined, the sum is greater, the sum of the whole is greater than the individual elements. That's right. And it's something that's sort of out of the ordinary course of the way you generate revenue, right? You know, the product you sell or the or the service you provide. And it usually, you know, it involves some other party in a way that strategically helps your company grow. What are some of the really unusual kinds of deals that people generally don't think about. Well, so I'll give you an example from a, a client that uh, I had, you know, many years ago. You know, he was in a position where he had raised some early money uh, and given away equity in exchange for some early capital. And also he had given equity to some of his service providers, which a lot of people do early on. Right. You know, they can't afford to pay the uh, the tech, the tech people or the web designer or the you know, so they give him some equity. And he had came to me at a point where he had given away enough for the company and didn't want to give up more equity, but needed capital. And at the time he had a service where he was providing information on schools and school systems, and it was marketed through real estate agencies. So people would come into a real estate agency and, you know, decide where they want to live. And one of the biggest questions were how the, were the schools and they were, the real estate agencies would pay on a subscription basis. 
for these reports that would give all kinds of information on the schools. So, you know, we designed what we call the participation interest, where instead of getting equity in the company, the people who put up additional capital got a uh, percentage of the revenue that was derived from a territory of these real estate subscriptions. So that's just one example of a creative deal. You know, other ones are, you know, people often have things they can license. I mean, a lot of solopreneurs have content that they deliver and that they've done. And instead of selling that time or going around speaking all the time, they can potentially license out the training programs for other people and, uh, you know, and make money that way. So those are just two examples of, uh, of many types of deals you can do. Right. Those are great examples. Corey, how easy is it to make a deal? Well, so listen, there are a number of aspects uh, of a deal, right? And like anything else, uh, if you just try to wing it, you know, you're going to be in trouble, right? Uh, to do anything right, whether it's uh, to create a new revenue source for your business or put in a new marketing plan or hire a key uh, employee, you know, you need to, first of all, figure out the why, you know, what is the purpose of what you of doing deals? The second thing is you have to uh, put in a plan you know, in terms of how you can execute it, a project plan to allocate the right resources to it, time, money, energy, personnel, et cetera. And then you got to go find the deals. I actually just did uh, a solo cast. Uh, that's, I think, uh, going to be going up next week on, on my podcast on how you find deals. And then there's structuring the deals, closing the deals. And then people forget on the back end, integrating the deals and making them actually work in your business. So it sounds like it's a lot but listen, it's like anything else you do. Like I said, if you're going to put it in a new marketing plan, you have all those kind of steps as well. So it just takes uh, some knowledge, some effort, maybe some uh, you know advice from people who've done it before. Actually, let's go to the last step, integrating, because that's one where I have seen people really challenged. Certainly when there's a merger or acquisition, you have a lot of challenges around trying to build culture following a merger or acquisition. What are some of the challenges that you've seen when it comes to integrating the result following the closing of a deal? Yeah, you know, David, you are so right on on that. And it's the, it's the one of the most overlooked areas. And it's how uh, everything from smaller deals to some of these, you know, bigger mergers and acquisitions that we read about public companies that don't work out, you know, often, you know, come that way. So, you know, the, the challenges come from a lack of shared vision, a clash of organizational cultures, personal egos that get involved if it's not clear on who's going to be running the show when you're combining two entities. And but, you know, most of it really comes down to the fact that the parties didn't do their homework up front because all of those things should be thought through. You know, before you go into a deal, just because it's accretive to revenue or increases the size of the company or expands your geography or creates additional expertise or, you know, product lines, which are all good reasons to do deals doesn't mean it's going to work. And when you are bringing on personnel from other companies, whether it's, you know, executive team or or technology level or whatever it is, if you don't think up front about, hey, what is the shared vision of doing this deal? Are we all aligned on what we're trying to accomplish? Are we aligned on what the team's going to look like going forward? Have we really looked at whether our culture's aligned or whether we can get them aligned? And that's, you know, one of the most under- um, appreciated ones. I, I, you know, I had a deal once, um, just to give an example, and I, lawyers get uh, a uh, reputation, sometimes rightfully so, of being deal killers. And, you know, every lawyer says they're a deal maker these days because they try to counteract that. And the truth is, I, you know, I've done so many, so many deals and I'm always looking to move a deal forward positively. But, you know, occasionally it's a good idea to ask some questions about this kind of thing. So I'll give you an example where we avoided a, a catastrophe in terms of the integration. I had two firms, they were both super successful. 
in a professional services kind of space. But they had totally different cultures, totally different models. One firm was very tight on you know, what they spent. They, they kept costs low. They were very profitable because of that. They did quality work, but they were very conscious, you know, about what they spent. The other firm was a sort of spend money to make money firm. You know, it was a, they spent a lot of client entertainment. Uh, the principal of that firm traveled around the world, stayed in the best hotels, uh, you know, but produced a lot of revenue from high-end clients from that. The firms were equally profitable. Uh, on paper, it looked like a good match. They had known each other for a while. But when we started asking questions about, hey, you know, your leases are coming up. What kind of, have you talked about kind of, what kind of office space you want? Have you talked about what discretionary uh, spending accounts are going to be for each of the partners? You know, and we started getting into some of the things around the philosophy around money. What they ended up realizing was that they were too different. You know, the, the person who was really spend, you know, uh, less, keep the expenses down, would have kept her up at night, uh, you know, when our partner was going around the world, money on stuff. And the other guy would have driven him crazy if he had to, you know, reduce his expenses. And they were both equally profitable, but it, you know, it just didn't work out culturally. So those are the kind of things you have to think about up front, uh, because if you save it for the back end, you're going to be in trouble. Right. So the first step you mentioned, Corey, is why? Why do a deal in the first place? Which to me sounds like people are going to be thinking about the opportunity. Um, they'll probably, if they're smart, they'll think a little bit about the risk or maybe a lot about the risk. I wonder, like in my experience, I know people tend to think a lot more about the opportunity than they do about the risk. So I'm wondering where in this process you should be asking questions about the potential pitfalls of the integration, which is the last step. Yeah, I listen, obviously it's not the first thing you're going to do, but way before you get to anywhere near even drafting legal documents, right, or putting together even a letter of intent, uh, which is the first step of sort of, you know, documenting and closing a deal, those things should have been talked out, thought out, discussed. And part of it is is at the vision and values level and culture level. And then part of it is a pr very practical level. You know, have you gotten your technology teams, you know, aligned and, and looked at, you know, uh, whether the technology, you know, how are you going to actually do it to, to put together a project plan for how that's going to happen on the integration on the back end? So, you know, it's it's somewhere, you know, I'd say in the, in the middle of the diligence process, but way before you start entering into any uh, significant, uh, you know, definitive deal documents. Hmm. And Corey, where in this process should a business owner think about getting help for any one or more of these steps along the way, particularly given the fact that you don't know what the financial outcome or the potential financial outcome is going to be and how successful it's going to be. And you're talking about not only an investment of time of the people who are currently in the business, but you're talking about investing time and money in expertise, like, you know, somebody like you or maybe other other kinds of resources. Where do you start to think about getting help? Sure. And listen, obviously, part of it depends upon what size of deal we're talking about and, you know, and, and what the budget is, you know, bigger companies are going to have huge teams that do this. But, you know, for smaller deals, I think it's crucial to have at least one person, you know, if you don't, as the business owner, have the experience of doing multiple deals, it's crucial to have at least one person on your team, uh, you know, whether it's outsourced or, you know, whatever, who's had deal experience and can at least raise the, the, say, the right questions, whether that's your attorney, whether there's an investment bank or a business broker involved, or whether it's somebody internal, either that you've hired or as a consultant that has done deals. Because 
people who have done deals, you know, obviously people are going to pay for my expertise just as, a, as an attorney to document deals. That's a separate conversation. But I, I also, you know, often because I've done hundreds and hundreds of deals, I'm the kind of person that can raise these questions. So it, you know, it doesn't have to be your lawyer. It could be a, a consultant or whatever, but you need one person involved who has done deals before to at least raise the questions with you pretty early on in the process. Right. Because when we're planning something, we know what we know and we know we know what we don't know. And it's what we don't know that we don't know that's likely to bite us in the butt later on. That's absolutely right. And listen, it's like anything else we take on. You know, as you do more and more deals, you'll get that institutional knowledge, that in-house knowledge. You'll you know you'll get how it works for you and what you need to do. But in the beginning, you know, you need somebody else who's who's done that a bunch to uh, point out the blind spots, like you were saying. Right, Corey. When do you think somebody should think about a deal? So I really advocate that every company should at least be you know, and principals, owners, executive teams, uh, entrepreneurs should at least get educated about deals. Because the thing is that so many companies spend so much time trying to grow organically and you need to do that. You need to provide great products and services. You need to, you know, figure out your marketing and, you know, and sales plan. And and obviously that's crucial, but because of competition, because of, you know, economic conditions, because of cycles, all kinds of things, sometimes people, you know, stagnate and, you know, you want to find other ways. So sometimes people are growing fine, but they want to grow more quickly. So, you know, what I say is, listen, start to get educated over time. Don't, you know, you don't have to rush to implement anything. You don't have to do a deal tomorrow, but, you know, learn your options. And then what happens is it opens up your eyes. I mean, one of, one of the first, um, the first solo cast I did on my podcast was called The Language of Deals. And I laid out just a lot of the different types of deals that businesses can do really just to open up the thinking of entrepreneurs and, and business owners and, you know, and, and C-level executives who may not be doing deals to say, hey, there's all these kinds of, kinds of deals you can do. Because then what happens is when you're out there and you're at industry conferences or you're, you know, meet people or whatever, you know, you have it in your mind and you say, oh, wait a second, this company that I just met who, uh, you know, doesn't do what we do, but has access to the same customers that we're trying to get to, well, maybe there's some sort of strategic alliance we can do with them. You know, it just it just raises these questions in your mind. And then, you know, you can take advantage of uh, of deals. Now, there are some companies that that really have a deal program and they make it a conscious part of their of their uh, growth plan. But I think it's a great idea for any entrepreneur or a business executive to just start becoming aware of deals so that when things show up, they see opportunities. Corey, how important is it to have a mindset of abundance if you're going to be able to take advantage of deals? Uh, You are speaking my language now (laughs) because I am, uh, you know, I'm a huge believer in, in how mindset is the first thing about anything. You know, if you are in in a place of limited beliefs, I mean, for example, I mean, to make it around deals, you know, some people have this belief that, oh, I have no capital. I can't do deals. Well, you know, there are a million examples of people who've done deals without capital. And I do think, listen, I do believe in the law of attraction, not in the simplified way that people have criticized it. You know, it's not just what you think about comes about. But when you have an abundance mentality and you think something's possible, what happens is it opens up your eyes to opportunities. And then, of course, there's the second piece of it where you need to take action. But if you don't have the mindset where you think that you can do deals or where you don't think that there's abundance available, you don't think that, you know, the right kind of deals are going to be available, a personnel is going to be available, a client's going to be available to you, then you don't even know what kind of action to take and you actually limit the scope. So I, I think it's, you know, unbelievably crucial that 
the mindset's right. And an abundance mentality is a big part of what's helped me be successful. And I've seen, you know, my clients who are most successful always have an abundance mentality. So speaking of that, how have you applied some of these principles to your own business? So in a few ways, I mean, first of all, listen, you know, my core business is a law firm and at its core, lawyers tend to sell their time. And, you know, for decades, the lawyers have been trying to find a way to ways to create revenue models that aren't about selling their time, because even though lawyers can, you know, depending on what area of the law you're in and whatever, you you know, you can potentially sell your time at a higher hourly rate than some other professions. You know, you're still you're still selling your time. When you stop selling your time, you're not making money. And, and you know, it's it's not the ideal business model. So, you know, one of the things I've done is is what is very traditional in the service business, which is leverage, meaning that I've produced enough business to be able to hire other people to do most of the work. And, you know, I pay them X and build them out of the multiple of X. That's a classic, you know, way that service business is built. And, and I've done that. But in addition to that, you know, what I've done is I created revenue models where we do a lot of fixed fee work. We've created niches where we're really good at stuff and we can do stuff repeatedly and we have a high level of expertise. So we're not getting paid by the hour. We're getting paid by the value we provide. And then, you know, over the years, I've also looked at how I can create certain strategic alliances, whether it's bringing in key people, or I'll give you an example. One of my niches, we do, we have clients all over the, I mean, you name an industry, I've done a deal in it, but we do have this niche in the financial services space. And, you know, most, the concept of a channel partner arrangement is pretty common, like in software and other technology and other, you know, other types of manufacturing businesses. We have certain channel partners that, you know, you don't, uh, necessarily market to the end client, but you market to somebody who markets to the end client. But in a service business, that's somewhat unusual. But for us in the investment advisor space and financial services, we've been able to do that. So uh, there are custodians, Schwab, Fidelity, TD, Pershing, who are calling on in, uh, brokers at these big uh, investment advisory firms, these big brokerage firms like Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS, and they and they have salespeople. They're, they call business development office, and they're calling on them all the time to try to get them to leave and set up their own independent investment advisory firms. And then the reason they do that is because the assets leave a Morgan Stanley and go on the Schwab platform or the Fidelity platform, for example. Well, I've spent a lot of time establishing great relationships with those custodians because all of the uh, teams that are leaving those brokerage houses need uh, legal help to do that. And we've created a whole model and system on how we take these teams out and set them up. So the great part is that you know, we don't even have an economic arrangement because lawyers aren't allowed to share fees. In other industries, you can do an economic arrangement with channel partners. But what the custodians like about us is that we do great work. We get we get them set up. We get them out successfully. And then the assets move on to their platform. Right. So uh, what we've been able to do is create a situation where we have an indirect sales force of all these business development office salespeople at the custodians who are basically selling to the clients for us because they're making a sale for themselves. But then they're going to refer us in. So that's an unusual uh, approach. And, you know, it's something that other service uh, businesses may be able to take advantage of. Right. Which also ties into this whole abundance mentality, because you're creating a scenario where everybody wins. Well, that's right. The custodial firms win. The investment advisors that are setting up their own shop win because they're getting they're getting the structure set up effectively. And then you're winning as well because your firm's getting the work. That's right. And we've created, you know, I won't get into details of it, but, you know, we've created some 
interesting services that we provide where we sort of incubate these firms. We own them temporarily. There's some legal reasons why, while employed, these advisors can't, can't own firms. And, you know, all of that is charged on a value basis. So again, we're not selling our time there, but the value we're providing to these advisors, and some of it is direct legal work, and some of it is some of these, you know, uh, incubation services we provide that uh, really help these guys get out. So we've been able to create a model that is largely sold by other people uh, under which we get you know, paid on a project or, you know, uh, fixed fee basis that's unrelated to our time that provides use value to the advisors. And yes, like you said, to the custodial partners as well. Corey, what has helped you with some of your most innovative thinking? Well, uh, so there's been a few things. First of all, I, you know, I do a lot, I've done a lot of personal growth and business growth work over the years, a lot, a lot around the mindset, you know, and abundance uh, work that you've talked about. I mean, I've done a lot of work about around my relationship to money, you know, early on, I, uh, before Lynn Twist was, uh, even wrote her books and whatever, she was the, she was the, uh, uh, fundraiser for the hunger project that was involved. And she had a whole thing around soul of money and it was all around abundance and seeing money as spiritual energy that flows and not something that you try to hold on to because if you hold on to it, it festers and become diseased. So I've done a lot of work around that. And then I've also, you know, and, and also, you know, the business growth. So I'm a lifelong learner. I really believe that that's actually crucial to constantly. I think the biggest limitation we have as business owners on our business success is actually our personal limiting beliefs and and limitations on think, what we think we deserve. So if we don't work on our relationship to money and our relationship to success and relationship to, uh, you know, what we think we're worth, then we're not going to be as successful. So that's been been one huge factor. And the other factor I would say is surrounding myself. You know, I've been a member. I was a member for over a decade of uh, of entrepreneurs organization. I was the president for a couple of years. And, you know, what I have is I have a couple of forums, uh, my local forum and then a past president's uh, forum where I meet either monthly or quarterly, depending on which group it is, uh, with other successful entrepreneurs. And, you know, I was just in Nepal, for example, I got back, I was on a retreat with seven other business owners, different industries. And, you know, what I get to do is, you know, each of them is brilliant at something I'm not brilliant at, right? And and I get to contribute to them. They contribute to me. You know, it's a, it's a trusted environment. And, you know, I think being around, especially when you're an entrepreneur, uh, being around other entrepreneurs who live this crazy life that we do, where we create something out of nothing, but also there's no guarantees, no, you know, and no guaranteed paycheck, and then we have to meet payrolls, and you have to figure out how to grow your business and deal with all the things that come up. I think surrounding yourself with, with those kind of people is absolutely key as well. Well said. Corey, whom do you know personally who has done a remarkable job of smashing the plateau? You know, there's so many of my clients come to mind because I'm fortunate enough to work with uh, people who have, you know, been innovative. I'll mention one right now, just because he's got a, he's got a book coming out. I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have as a, have as a client and uh, and friend and a fellow uh, somebody I met through EO, David Bach, and uh, and David uh, has a new book coming out. Uh, called the Latte Factor. He's uh, is the also the author of Automatic Millionaire and a, and a bunch of other finished rich books. And you know he has uh, David's taken. You know you, you might think of him as a speaker and author, but uh, I'm about to have him on the podcast. Actually, uh, my podcast Fuely Deals, and uh, you know he's developed business models uh, around licensing, around taking equity pieces in companies, around uh, you know being able to leverage corporate involvement, you know, and sponsorships in his books, where he's, uh, you know, been very, very successful while at the same time, uh, providing huge value to other people. And that's important to me He has a big, big impact. And, and it's uh, caused him, you know, providing that value and being innovative in the way he does deals and the way he structures his relationships and the way he leverages it has uh, had him smash the plateau. 
Yeah, really great example. Corey, what's coming up for you in the near future? So, you know, listen, I'm excited, you know, we're uh, unlike you, who's, uh, you know, uh, somewhere around 500 episodes in, uh, you know, I am, uh, uh, by the time this airs, I might be 15 episodes into my uh, Fueling Deals podcast, but I'm super excited about that. Uh, I'm hiring a couple of key people for, you know, for my team that'll free me up even more. And, you know, I do a decent amount of speaking, but one of the, uh, one of the goals is to really free myself up to be out there more to impact more people through, uh, through speaking and, you know, and, and writing and, uh, and having that great team back at my law firm and my consulting firm to, uh, do a lot of the work on the services so I can provide the high level strategic advice and, you know, they can do a lot of the other work. And Corey, if somebody wants to go deeper with anything you shared today or learn more about some of the things that we've discussed, where would they go? So uh, CoreyCupfer.com, C-O-R-E-Y-K-U-P-F-E-R.com is sort of the hub. Uh, you know, that, that'll, uh, the Fueling Deals podcast is on there. It's, if you want to go directly, it's FuelingDeals.com. Uh, they can get to my law firm, which is CupferLaw.com. But if they just go to CoreyCupfer.com, they can find out about the book, the podcast, click through to the law firm. You know, everything is, is there as a central hub. Sounds great. Uh, well, Corey, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Smashing the Plateau. My guest today has been strategist, negotiator, and dealmaker Corey Kupfer. Thank you again, Corey, for joining us. It's been great to be with you. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mention on the show. Today, we discussed how to create deals where the resulting whole is much greater than the sum of the individual parts, and how Corey has built multiple growing revenue streams in his own business. Would you like more consistent, stable revenue in your business? Go to smashingtheplateau.com and click on Schedule Time with David to connect directly with me. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review if you can. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.